Jacob's Well or Jacob's Well Women's Friends coming to the retreat. And uh, if you do that, uh, I will preach in a suit and tie, which I'm kind of allergic to. So I'm... Today we are covering a topic that none of us want to talk about, but it is a topic that we need to talk about. It's the topic of suffering. <laughs> that was a well-timed laugh. <laughs> There's a teenager, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, enjoyed many activities that teenagers enjoy, whether it be hiking or boating, or swimming, or tennis. She was a very active young lady. But late in her teen years, in 1967, on July 30th, Johnny drove out to the Chesapeake Bay, and she went out to go diving. And as she dove into the water, she misjudged the depth, and she hit the bottom, and she fractured her spine and immediately became a quadriplegic which means she didn't have use of her legs or her arm for the rest of her life. During her two years of rehab, she experienced anger and depression, suicidal thoughts, and even questioned her faith. She said this, she said, I had so many questions. I believed in God, but I was angry with him. How could my circumstances be a demonstration of his love and power? Surely he could have stopped it from happening. How can permanent, lifelong paralysis be a part of his loving plan for me? Unless I found answers, I didn't see how this God could be worthy of my trust. Suffering is a reality for all of us. Suffering is an important topic to cover. Suffering is an important theology for us to develop. Because all of us will suffer. All of us will suffer in our life to one degree or to another. Some of our suffering might be due to the loss of a child, to chronic pain, to the betrayal of a loved one. Sometimes our suffering is due to extreme depression. And when we go through these times of suffering, it is natural and honest that we ask the question, where is God in this? Or if God is good, why does he allow me to suffer like this? Many people are not prepared to give an answer to this question. Many people do not know why God would possibly send suffering into their life. And so as a result, they abandon their faith. And so you see, for us today, it is important for us to understand why God allows suffering in your life, in my life. Paul, who wrote the letter of Philippians, was familiar with suffering. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes, they said, would kill a man. And so they gave him 39 lashes. And this happened to Paul three different, I'm sorry, five different times. He goes on, he says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. 
I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul, who writes this letter of joy, this letter of Philippians, was a man who knew suffering very well. But what is so interesting is that Paul discovered the secret to joy in suffering. And that's the secret that we're going to uncover today. If you would please open up to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verse 12 through 18 today. That's page 980 in the Red Bible, page 1452 in the Children's Bible. Last week, we dove into this letter to the Philippians. We looked at verses 1 through 11, and we saw a picture of a joy-saturated gospel community. We saw the building blocks of this community, that there was a partnership between Paul and the Philippians, a partnership in promoting the gospel, but also partaking of God's grace. We saw another building block was prayer. And we saw this in Paul's prayer for the Philippians as he praised God for them, giving thanks for them, letting his heart well up with joy for them. But also petitioning God for them, making requests on their behalf, praying specifically for intelligent love. And then finally, we saw God's perseverance. Paul resting confidently in this, that God who began a good work in them would bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. These were the building blocks of a joy-saturated gospel community. And today we are going to see the foundation of a joy-saturated suffering. Let's look together. Verse 12 through 18 of Philippians 1. Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to this very personal and tender topic of suffering, we recognize that there are some people in this room that are going through this, the worst trials of their life. And there are some of us who have trials yet to come that we can't even imagine. And so, God, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would be filled with a hope that outweighs the trials that come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just yesterday, I re received an email from a friend who asked me this question. She said, how do I respond to a friend who is promoting the prosperity gospel? 
The prosperity gospel is basically a gospel that is the gospel of Christ mixed with the American dream. And it says if you believe in Jesus, if you have enough faith, if you obey God, you will be free from suffering. You'll be free from physical suffering. You'll be free from financial suffering. You'll be free from relational suffering. If only you have enough faith, you will be free from suffering. What God says is far different than that. God never promises that we will be free from suffering. As a matter of fact, he promises that we will have suffering. Jesus in John 16 says, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations. You will have afflictions. You will suffer. Guaranteed. This will happen. Today, God's word is going to challenge us in our view of suffering. It's going to challenge us to see that suffering is not an obstacle to our joy. Rather, suffering is an opportunity for our joy. It is not something to try to escape at all costs, but it is something to embrace with the hope of the gospel. Today, we're going to look at two parts of suffering. First, we're going to see the fruit of joyful suffering. What benefit does suffering have? Does it have any? And secondly, we will look at the foundation for joyful suffering. How is joy in the midst of suffering possible? Let's start with the first, fruit of joyful suffering. What benefit does it have? You know, going through a time of suffering is never fun. None of us wish to suffer. And yet, suffering has much benefit to us. It has more benefit than we're going to cover today, but, but today we're going to see at least two ways that suffering is beneficial for us and for God and for his kingdom. The first we see is that joyful suffering gives you a greater opportunity to preach Christ. Let me remind you of Paul's situation. Paul was commissioned by God to go and proclaim the good news of Christ to the Gentiles. And so Paul goes out throughout Europe and he goes about planting churches that people might know Christ. And Paul's expedition, it leads him to Rome. Rome is the economic, political, and commerce capital of the world. And so it is a strategic place to proclaim the gospel and to establish a church, but it's also a dangerous place. Paul is going right into the teeth of the Roman Empire, and he is proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming that Christ is Lord over all, even Caesar. And as a result, Paul is put in prison. And not only is he put in prison, but he is put on death row for proclaiming Christ. Now, from the Philippians' perspective, who loved Paul very much, this was a hard thing to swallow. It seems that the Romans have taken off the map God's greatest evangelist at the time. It seems that the Romans were keeping Paul from fulfilling his mission of proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles. That's what it seems like from a human perspective. But Paul sees his situation from God's perspective. Paul knew his suffering was not an obstacle to preaching Christ, but rather an opportunity to preach Christ all the more. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his unjust arrest, his imprisonment, his death sentence, 
has really served to advance the gospel. Not to hinder it, but to help it. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Commentators agree that this imprisonment that Paul had among the imperial guard would have been in the house, the royal guard of the Caesar, who at that time would have been Nero, and the guards of Nero would have taken turns chaining themselves to Paul to ensure that he wouldn't escape. One friend of mine told me that, that they, they took four shifts throughout the day, four six-hour shifts in which the different imperial guard would chain themselves to Paul to ensure that he wouldn't escape. Now, at first glance at this, we probably say, poor Paul. He's always around somebody. Somebody's already there. He doesn't have any privacy. But in reality, we might want to have more sympathy on the guards. You see, Paul, for six hours at a time, would literally have a captive audience. For six hours at a time, they could not escape Paul. For six hours at a time, Paul could preach whatever he wanted to to them, and they could not leave. And so for six hours at a time, Paul preached Christ, both in his words and in his actions, to these jailers. For six hours at a time, Paul got to show the whole imperial guard and all the rest that his imprisonment was for Christ. Paul was convinced that although the messenger of the gospel can be imprisoned, the message of the gospel can never be imprisoned. That there is no situation that can take away the beauty and the glory of the gospel. The beauty and the glory and the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I can tell you dozens of stories of how suffering has given someone a greater opportunity to proclaim the goodness and love and mercy of God. Dozens. But I'll share just one. When I was finishing up seminary in St. Louis, I was hired at New Hope Church. And as I was hired, uh, I found out that there was a young lady named Tracy who was in a hospital in St. Louis. And she was going under undergoing back surgery, and then she had to be on bed rest for several months. Uh, it was a severe back problem that she had. And matter of fact, uh, one other girl had it, and she underwent surgery, and she ended up paralyzed. And so you could imagine how Tracy felt in that, ho- in that hospital room, not knowing what the results were going to be, being bed rest for month upon month upon month. And yet, in that moment of suffering, there was this great opportunity to share with her roommates, to share with the patients, to share with the doctors that there is a joy greater than walking. That there is a Savior that can take away all of our pain and all of our sorrow for all eternity. And that was an opportunity for her to share Christ, knowing that suffering was not an obstacle to proclaiming the goodness of Christ, but rather a greater opportunity to preach him all the more. What suffering do you go through? How do you suffer? Again, maybe it is physical. Maybe it is financial. Maybe it is relational. Maybe it's psychological. Suffering is not a good thing. Suffering is an evil thing. Yet God promises always to use it for good. 
Suffering is an opportunity. It is a platform to proclaim the greatness of Christ. Do not waste your suffering. It is too precious. We have the enormous opportunity and obligation to proclaim Christ even in the midst of suffering. And this brings Paul great joy. So that is one fruit of suffering that we see, a platform to present Christ. Another fruit of suffering is it gives others a greater confidence to preach Christ. You know, as a parent, I learned the difference between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, right? Positive reinforcement is when your child does something good, you give them a reward, such as a piece of candy or time on the iPad or whatever it might be, right? But then there's negative reinforcement. When your child does something wrong, you discipline them. You put them in time out or you take candy away or you take iPad time away or whatever it might be. There's positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. When you look at the, the law system, both today and in Paul's time, it uses negative reinforcement. It takes things away from you. When you cross the line, when you do something wrong, you get a fine. You get a ticket. You get thrown in prison. You may be even put to death. And the reason for that negative reinforcement is to deter you from ever doing that thing again. But it's also to deter anyone else from doing it. And so here we see that the Roman government puts Paul in jail because he is proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming Christ as Lord over all, even Lord over Caesar. And they want to put that ad to an end. And they want to make an example of Paul. They want to bring Paul forward, and they want to put him in jail and possibly even kill him in order that others who would be tempted to proclaim Christ would keep quiet. But what we see is that this imprisonment, by the grace of God, has the opposite effect. Look in verse 14. Paul says, And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Why would that be? Rome was hoping that the imprisonment would, would squelch their proclamation, but it, it fanned the flame. Why would Paul's imprisonment encourage the men and women of God to speak the truth of God more boldly? Well, there's a, a couple things that I just want to go through quickly. The first is that the, the Romans and probably Philippians saw the boldness of Paul even in the face of execution. And that boldness was an encouragement to them to be bold regardless of what they might suffer. Whether it be a loss of reputation, a loss of business, whatever it might be. Seeing Paul's boldness in the midst of suffering encouraged them towards boldness. The second thing is that Paul's imprisonment reminded them that the gospel is so precious that it is worth fighting for, it is worth living for, and it is worth dying for. That's why later Paul can say that some indeed preach Christ from goodwill, doing it out of love. They understand how much God loves them, and it creates a stirring in their heart to love others no matter what the cost. And then thirdly, Paul's, Paul's imprisonment encouraged the brothers and sisters because they realized that if the gospel could be successful in a Roman prison, certainly it could be successful in their neighborhood. You know, we so many times look to our chains. We look to the barriers that keep us from sharing the good news of Christ with others. 
Maybe we feel chained to our cubicle or office with an overwhelming pile of work. Maybe we feel chained to the house with little children that need us all the time. Maybe we feel chained to to feelings of fear or inability. Maybe we feel chained to an extremely busy schedule in which we say, you know what? There is no way I can proclaim the goodness of Christ in the midst of these chains. And yet Paul reminds us through his circumstance that God can not only work in every circumstance, but God can use every circumstance to proclaim the goodness and glory of Christ. We must not look to our limitations, but look to the unlimited God and boldly preach Christ to all who would hear. And so we see the fruit of joyful suffering is that we have a greater opportunity to preach Christ. We have the opportunity to give others a greater confidence to preach Christ. But how do we get this joy? How do we get joy in suffering? Is it something that we just muster up in ourselves? Is it something that we just try really hard to be really happy? Do we just try to be optimistic and see the silver lining? How can we have joy in the midst of suffering? Paul is a great teacher on this. We saw this back, if you remember, in the Philippian jail in Acts 16, in which he was singing songs and praising God in the midst of his suffering. And here, again, we see Paul rejoicing in the midst of suffering. How is it possible to rejoice even in the midst of suffering? Well, first we see it is by believing in the sovereignty of God. If you're familiar with Paul's writings in the New Testament, you know that his overarching theme in many of those books is a confidence that God is in control of all things, even suffering. The letter to the Philippians is no different. He expresses his confidence in God's sovereignty earlier when he says that he has confidence that God will accomplish his purposes in all of his saints. And Paul continues it here in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You know, this statement is eerily familiar. It sounds so much like Paul's other writing in Romans 8.28 when he says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. Whether the situation is good or whether the situation is bad, God promises to use that situation for the good of those who love him. You know, suffering comes to all people. Suffering does not just come to Christians. It comes to non-Christians as well. But for the Christian, we have this promise that our suffering is not in vain, that our suffering comes with a purpose, that God is going to use our suffering for good. In the midst of it, it is so hard to believe. And that's when we need to trust God's character and his resume and remember that God is good and that God loves us and cares for us. Later down in Philippians 1 verse 29, Paul says something very interesting. He says, For it has been granted or given to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. Paul did not see his imprisonment or the persecution of the Philippian church as a tragic accident. He didn't see it as bad luck. He saw it as a gift from God. Not that God is the author of evil, but that God permits this evil, that he grants it, that we might suffer for the sake of Christ. You know, earlier I was talking about Johnny Erickson Tata and the tragedy she underwent with with breaking her neck and becoming a quadriplegic and, and how she was struggling to trust God and 
and to believe in God and, and wondering, Lord, how can you have this in my life? How could this be a part of your good plan? While she reflected back on that tragedy, she wrote this. She said, it is a glorious thing to know that your Father God makes no mistakes in directing or permitting that which crosses the path of your life. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is our glory to trust him no matter what. Real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting in his promises, and in leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and does all things well. You don't have to be alone in your hurt. Comfort is yours. Joy is an option. And it's all been made possible by your Savior. He went without comfort so you might have it. He postponed joy so you might share in it. He willingly chose isolation so you might never be alone in your hurt and sorrow. This alone is enough to cause great gratitude. End quote. You know, when we look to the cross, when we look to the cross, it does not tell us all the reasons that we suffer. But it tells us what the reason is not. The reason we suffer is not because God doesn't love us. When we look to the cross, we see a symbol of a great and tremendous time of suffering in which Christ hung upon the cross and suffocated and died for our sin, but we also see a symbol of the greatest love that the world has ever known. For us, it may be hard to imagine how suffering and love meet, but what we see at the cross is that God both puts suffering and love over the same circumstance, and we get to trust his character even when we don't understand his purposes. Our joy is not necessarily in knowing all the reason God grants suffering in our life, but knowing that God, who has a sovereign plan, loves us and cares for us and is good. So the foundation for joyful suffering is believing God is sovereign over all suffering and nothing is an accident. The second, the second thing that is a foundation for our joy is wanting the salvation of men and women. You see, suffering reveals what we cherish. And we see what Paul cherishes here in verse 15 through 18. Look with me if you would. In verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And then he, he separates verse 15 and verse, verse 16. He talks to those who preach with goodwill. In verse 17, he talks about those who preach out of envy and rivalry. And so first, those who preach out of goodwill, in verse 16, he says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Again, these are the brothers that are encouraged to speak more boldly because of Paul's imprisonment. And then Paul talks about the other proclaimers of Christ. Those that preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. In verse 17, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me, in my imprisonment. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that verse, it seems very odd to me. You know, like, like who is preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry? Who's preaching Christ to, to create suffering for Paul 
in prison? Who preaches Christ with impure motives? It just seems so strange to me. But indeed, there were those who preached Christ with impure motives. Their goal was not simply to make disciples of Christ, but to make disciples of themselves. Their goal wasn't simply simply to extend the kingdom of Christ, but to extend the kingdom of themselves. And so while Paul is in prison, preachers are out there with false motives, seizing the opportunity to take his disciples to themselves, to say things, you know, you know, Paul is a pretty good guy. He's a really good preacher, but you know, he's kind of extreme. He probably shouldn't have ended up in prison. Come be part of my flock. And so you see they have these false motives. And when we hear that, we probably think, man, that is horrible. It is horrible that a preacher would have such false motives. And I agree, it is horrible. But the reality is, I see these things in my own heart all the time. Anytime we have a time to proclaim Christ or sing about Christ, there are always these false motives competing in our heart. You know, it is so many times I want to preach a good sermon, not simply so that people cherish Christ more, but so they cherish me more. You know, Paul goes on in verse 18, and he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know, so many times when I meet folks out in the community, one of the questions I like to ask them is, where do you go to church? Because if they don't go to church anywhere, I want to invite them to come and join us. And so many times I'll hear them say, I go to this church and that church, and I have very different reactions on the inside. I have the same reaction on the outside. On the outside, you usually, oh, great, good, I'm glad to hear it. You know, but on the inside, I have very different reactions. Some churches where I know the pastor and I really enjoy the pastor and I trust the pastor, I'll say, great, I'm glad to hear you're going to that church. And I mean it from deep inside my soul. But there are other churches where in my head I'm thinking, you don't want to go to that church. Where I'm thinking, I can tell you why our church is better than your church. I mean, this isn't right. I'm not saying it's right. But that's what's going through my head. I'm thinking, you know, that pastor is is power hungry. If you get in his way, he's going to wipe you out. Or, or those elders, they don't know what they're doing, right? Or, or that church, it's so extremely legalistic. That's not where you want to be. That's, I don't say this verbally, but this is what I'm thinking in my head. And, and it's not that we should, that we should try to, that, that, that we soften the importance of having good doctrine. Just earlier, if you remember, Paul prayed that they would have intellectual love. But what we see here is Paul is telling us there is something even greater than intellectual love, and it is that the gospel in Christ is proclaimed. And for that, we rejoice. I need to make one clarification with this, though. is that when Paul praises God, that others are proclaiming Christ with false motives. He's not praising God that people are proclaiming a false gospel. You see, there's other passages like in Galatians in which Paul says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Literally, let him go to hell if he preaches a gospel different than the one we preach to you. And so Paul does not praise God for false teachers preaching a false gospel, but he praises God for those that preach the gospel with a false motive. You know, all of us have false motives 
when we're talking about Christ, whatever they might be, they're always intertwined. And yet here we see there is such good news that we cannot mess up the goodness of the gospel if we simply proclaim it. You know, one of the best quotes I've ever heard, the most encouraging quotes I've ever heard, is one pastor who said, you know, this other pastor, he can preach the gospel better than me, but he cannot preach a better gospel. You see, the good news of Christ and the salvation that we have is good news that we can share. And whether you have false motives or true, share it. Teach it. Talk about it. Tell others the good news that they might know Christ. This is Paul's joy. To know Christ and to make him known. And this should be our joy as well. A couple years back, there was a movie. I haven't seen it, but it's a movie called The Bucket List. Evidently, that's a familiar term to most people, but I didn't know what the bucket list meant. I had never heard of it, and so I needed someone to explain to me what a bucket list is. And if you don't know like I didn't know, a bucket list are the things you want to do before you die, things you want to accomplish before you die. I actually Googled it and found a website called bucketlist.net, and it lists the top 20 bucket list items for people. Number four was swimming with dolphins. Whee! Number three was getting a tattoo. Number two, which I thought would be number one, number two was skydiving. Number one, can anyone guess? I bet you can't. Number one on people's bucket list was seeing the northern lights. It's surprising. By a lot, that was the number one. What was number one on Paul's bucket list? To know Christ and make Christ known. You know, Paul's primary joy in life was not to gain a great reputation. It was not to have a great following for himself. Paul's greatest joy was not even freedom from jail or to be lit off death row. Paul's primary joy was to know Christ and to make him known. Or to put it another way, to find life in Christ and bring Christ into all of life. Paul was able to have joy in the midst of suffering because the number one thing on his bucket list, to know Christ and to make him known, was something that was untouchable. It was something that no one could steal from him, something that no one could take away from him, no matter how much they tortured him, no matter how much he suffered, no matter how long he was in prison, Paul's primary desire in life was untouchable. And because of this, he could have joy no matter what the situation, both in good and in bad. And so if you are at a point in your life in which you are enduring suffering, and it doesn't only make you sad, but it crushes you, could it be Because your greatest joy is being stolen from you. Could it be because your greatest joy is not knowing Christ and making him known? This is Paul's chief joy. And that's why in verse 18 he can say, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so the foundation for our joy And there is more than this, but the foundation for our joy is believing in the sovereignty of God that nothing is an accident and wanting the salvation of men, knowing Christ and making him known. Let me end with this story. There's a famous preacher named D.L. Moody, and he told the story of a Christian woman who was confined to her 
bedroom because of illness. And she lived in an attic apartment on a fifth-story apartment building. One day, a friend decided to come and visit her, and she brought a friend with her, a woman who had great wealth. And as they stepped into the lobby of this apartment complex, the woman commented, what a dark and filthy place. And the other woman responded, it's better higher up. And so they started to climb the stairs because there was no elevator. And as they got to the third floor, she said, things look even worse here. And the woman responded again, things, it's better higher up. Finally, the two women reached the attic and they walked into the room of the bedridden saint of God. And as they came in and saw the smile on her face and the joy in her heart, the woman couldn't help but to blurt out, it must be very difficult for you to be here like this. Without a hesitation, the woman said, it's better higher up. You see, What this woman wanted more than anything else in the world was Jesus. And she knew she was destined for a land where Christ would be, where she would enjoy him for all eternity. You see, the chief thing in her bucket list could not be taken from her, and so she could have joy no matter what she was suffering. You know, the reality is suffering reveals your bucket list. Suffering reveals what you cherish. If you cherish health and it's taken away from you, you will not only be sad, but you will be bitter against God. If you cherish money and comfort above all else and finances are hard, you won't only be humbled, but you will be angry with God. If you cherish family above all else, then sickness and death of a loved one will not only cause you to grieve, but it will crush you. But if knowing Christ in making him known is the treasure of your heart, then you have a joy that the world cannot touch. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess so often our treasure is not you. And so God, we pray that you would work mightily in our hearts to make you the thing we most delight in. Thank you that you have given yourself to us that through the cross you endured suffering, that we could look forward to a time and a day when there will be no more suffering, no more tears, and no more pain, pure delight in your presence. Lord God, I pray for those here who are enduring great suffering at this time, that they might be given an unexplainable joy because they have the one thing, the most important thing, that this world cannot take from them. They have you. Let them rejoice in that, Lord. Lord, as we turn to the table, as we turn to your supper, we're reminded of the price that you paid, that you suffered on our behalf to win us by your love. Set these elements apart from common use, God. Pray that you would make them not ordinary to us, but extraordinary as we remember your great sacrifice on our behalf. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.